Hi, this is Learn, and you're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. This is Bit Brad from Saxon. You're listening to the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. Yeah, yeah. This is the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast, featuring all your favorite bands from the 70s and 80s. The old stuff, the new stuff, the news, interviews, everything you need for your hard rock and metal mix. Right here, right now. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or whenever you're listening to this and wherever you are in this big old world, welcome along to episode 20 of the web's favourite classic rock and metal podcast. I'm Ollie Barnes and over the next hour or so I will as always be playing some tunes by and talking to bands and artists who originally came to our attention in the glorious 70s and 80s. Most of the bands we first listened to all those years ago are thankfully still producing great new music and in most cases still playing live and this week's guests are no exception. First up we have Rogue Male whose brief stay in the limelight was well deserved but then cut tragically short by that most evil of all demons, the industry itself, as main man Jim Little explains. I found out that the amount of money that went through hands was colossal and uh, we received nothing. We, we were basically on a weekly wage of 100 £150 a week. Next up is an artist who was much appreciated first time round, not just because she had a fantastic voice, wrote some great songs and put on a great show, but also because she was, and still is, drop-dead gorgeous. Lieron calls her own shots now and is back on the scene with a new record, but remembers a time when she kind of had to go with the flow. The next thing you know, I was in this outfit going, oh, so this is what we're doing? Really? <laughs> you know? Finally, a man who needs no introduction but graciously gave the show one just a few seconds ago, Biff Byford from Saxon. Biff was actually my first guest on our very first show way back in 2010, so it's always a thrill to catch up. And this time we spoke about new Saxon releases, old stage costumes, and inevitably the loss of his old mate and partner in crime, Lemmy. I think Lemmy, um, you know, obviously was special. Uh, you know, it was a big friend of mine. Before all that though, let's get the feet tapping with this old gem from the Swedish master.
So let's kick things off with Rogue Mail and more specifically their driving force Jim Little, a diehard punk from Northern Ireland who decided to mix his musical passions with the rock and metal coming out of England in the late 70s and early 80s. Signing to the Music for Nations label, their debut album, First Visit, came out in 1986 to great critical acclaim from the press and fans. The obligatory incessant touring followed, as did their follow-up, Animal Man, in 1986, which was also well received by all and sundry. So, all well in the rogue male camp, you would think. Alas, not, as Jim explains in an all-too-familiar story. As they were doing their bit as a touring and recording artist, pockets were being lined all over the place, but none of it was finding its way to them. I started, though, by asking him about that first album and whether they'd expected it to do so well, and as a reminder for those of you who haven't heard it for a while, or indeed at all, here's a snippet of the opening track, Crazy Motorcycle. when we did it we really weren't expecting anything we were just um, happy to be assigned to a label and, and getting an album out really you know I mean it, it actually took off quite well really uh, we, it was received uh, worldwide actually it was uh, it was voted album of the month in nearly every magazine there was out there at the time uh, right right, right across it, Metal Hammer um, On Fur Burn Jesus, it just goes on and on and we thought wow this is fantastic you know and uh, so much so that we actually got an award for uh, top international new artist because of it uh, in France. That was on for a magazine that organised that. I mean, I was aware of the band obviously because I was listening to, to to a lot of music at that time, but uh, of the of rock and metal. But I, I didn't for some reason I didn't investigate any further, and it was probably because a mate of mine didn't buy the album and I bought something else. And you know, it was in those days when we actually paid for frigging music. Um, and um, but my impression was that you were quite underground for a while. Is that right, or did I get that wrong? Well, underground, yeah. I mean, well, before we actually signed the Music for Nations, we kind of were just playing around the usual circuit, uh, the 101 clubs and the ad-lib clubs and that kind of thing. Uh, we did a few supports here and there, but there was nothing that really... Uh, of any significance really you know until I actually got uh, the record deal with Music for Nations and then we sort of moved up the ladder a bit uh, marquee and places like that and and that's when really the press started uh, homing in on us and really it, it took off like wildfire basically within a year of that, that first year of signing the Music for Nations we, we couldn't keep the press away really I mean they were, we were in crying nearly every other week you know and, and, and Metal Hammer all those all our magazines it was just crazy you know one of the things I did want to ask is we had a band on uh, called Madam X who did a show on Channel 4 that you guys did, which was called ECT. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I want to just want to explain, because we have a lot of listeners in the US, and, and, and it will say to them, remember at the time, we had four TV channels, um, yeah. and this was a show that was about heavy metal. It had four bands on a week or whatever, and it went out on a Friday at yes. half five. And how they managed to cram... Well, they didn't manage to cram everything in. But anyway, it was essentially... It was bands live on a stage. So... That in this country was about as mainstream as a band like you guys or any rock and metal band was ever going to get. Did it help? And was I forget when it was in the whole period that you were on, but did it help? And and because a lot of people must have seen it. Oh yeah, I mean it, it certainly did help. And uh, what what a fantastic day that was. Um, 
<laughs> uh, as you say, it was a, uh, that was a whole new thing that came along because there wasn't anything for metal, rock and metal bands at all. And suddenly there was this, this TV show and it was like, wow, uh, at last there's something to, you know, where you can see you know, music that I mean I was into. I'm into rock and metal, always have been, and punk as well. But, and there was really nothing on TV to look at. Uh, so when it came along, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, we need a lot more of this kind of thing, you know. And in terms of uh, helping us, I mean, it actually was our debut gig after we signed to Music for Nations. When we did that, it really took off like wildfire for us. We started getting gigs uh, everywhere, really. People asking us to do this and do that. And it just took off amazing, really, you know. we I think the next thing we did was support at Motorhead. That must have been pretty something. <laughs> uh, how am I going to get around this one? Uh, because uh, don't get around it. Meet it head on. Motorhead were uh, were never a band that I ever listened to. To be honest, I mean, I was at a, 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 a being a punk rocker before the, before anything happened with Rogue Mail. It was uh, the Rogue Mail things for me was just an extension of the punk thing, really. Right. Yeah. And uh, all those, I have to be honest, uh, really uh, none of the metal bands did anything for me at the time, and. Uh, when I kicked Rogue Mail off, it was more or less, uh, to me, it was an extension of being an, yet another punk band. But I've, it's always been heavy. Anything I've ever did was heavy. So it was a, a heavy punk band, basically. Uh, the only bands that have ever influenced me were The Who and uh, Thin Lizzy so, uh, <laughs> and The Sex Pistols. Obviously, after the first album, didn't really, I mean, given what we've just talked about and, and what the, the, the heights you were looking at, it didn't really actually got a plan was that largely due to pull due to label interference or not uh a plan yeah i've always had a plan but um uh the trouble was uh, i don't think the the labels really uh, understood that plan but uh i mean uh, it was fine for the first album and the second album released animal man just uh it was taken out of our control and uh, Electra took it away and remixed it without her permission, without even asking us or telling us. And they made a, a, a complete hash of it, really. And um, when I actually finally got to hear their mixes, I, I just thought, no, this is absolute rubbish. And I didn't want my name on it because it was it didn't represent the band at all. I and mean, when this all came about, it's that's when the... Oh, the, the shit hit the fan, basically, and I started looking uh, at, the, at the business side of things, and um, I realized that, it, uh, that the, the contracts that we had signed were a disaster. So, basically, I was it in a nutshell. But, but, I mean, Animal Man ultimately came out and was, again, well-received. So, how, how what happened with... Go on. Yeah, I mean, it was well-received again, and, uh, again, we were album of the month in all the magazines, and that's because it was our, our mix that was released. Electra didn't release it because we... We totally refused to let them release their mix. So we put the, the album without in, a, in the USA on, on another label, uh, Combat Records or something like that, I think it was called. We then started proceedings uh, to get out of the contract with Electra because it was, you know, we, we knew then that they, they weren't really working in our interest. So it was time to go. There must have been a lot that happened between between the first and the second album. As I say, you've had two albums come out, both of which you have every right to think, this is it. Yeah. You, you know, we, yeah. we've done what we need to do. But what was the... Was the like the shittiest thing, or the shittiest period, or the craziest, most ridiculous thing that you can recall over that period, which made you think this isn't going to happen because these guys are just uh, not with it? <laughs> I think what happened was when I went to and speak to solicitors, and they pointed out how many how many points in the contracts that we were getting shafted. Uh, 
that was uh, when I realized that um, I made a big mistake. And I mean, getting back to what the band, the band were there and the band delivered everything that it could deliver at the time uh, in every way, shape and form. We never got a bad review for live work or anything. And uh, the performances proved that. And it was the business that let us down. And uh, basically, we never ever got to see the, the accounts, but we were never accounted to ever. We never received any royalties. The record companies believed that they owned the copyright to the music, and they didn't. I do. And that was another hassle. But um, it just went from bad to worse, basically, you know. And uh, <laughs> it was an absolute... I mean, you sign to a record company, you think, well, this is it. We, you know, we can sit back and just all we do now is get out and tour and work and everything. But really, it's that was the, that was the biggest disaster for us anyway. It was uh, a, a, a really a great disaster for us because the record companies did absolutely nothing whatsoever to put the, to push the band forward. You know, if you're getting no royalties, you have any idea what those record sales were at the time? To this day, I still haven't been able to find that out. But what I did find out was, and it took me it took me six years to find this out. This is six years of, of a legal battle with Music for Nations. The solicitors assured me that it would take six months. But six years later, I'm still fighting it in court. And I found out that the, the, the amount of money that went through hands was colossal. And uh, we received nothing. We, uh, we were basically on a weekly wage of £100 a week, £150 a week. Oh, that's brutal. Mm-hmm. That's not a good tale. Not a good tale. And unfortunately, it's a tale I hear all too often from uh, a lot yeah. of bands from back in their day. How do you, I mean, if you look at the the business now, though, it's like there's been Armageddon on, on the uh, label front. Yeah. But people yeah. say, oh, you still need a label to do this, that and the other. Uh, from somebody yeah. that's been through the, the absolute ringer with the old system, how do you feel about how it's working now? Well, I don't think they do anything at all, basically. I don't think labels do anything. It, that's, on the evidence that I've seen so far from, from other bands that I'm, I've been talking to and everything else, uh, uh, that's why we have our own label at the minute, RM2K Music. So uh, um, I can't say that really a label are, are doing much really for anybody, you know. But let's talk about the band more specifically and what did go right, which was obviously the music. I, I, I was reminded actually a lot of the New York hardcore scene with Rogue Mail, which obviously was, was massively derived from punk. And it's not like I'm an expert, but we had Roger Mirey on a couple of months ago from Agnostic Front. Agnostic Front, and they were, you know, they're all about initiating change, and uh, and that's obviously what hardcore is. And, and but he was insistent that the songs must be about something deep and meaningful, <laughs> yeah. and and otherwise it was a waste of, of effort. Whereas you guys were as happy singing about <laughs> Belfast in '86 yeah. as you yeah. were all over you, yeah. <laughs> you know. So more of a happy medium. So I think, it, and I think it's one of the things that made you different. There was that punk sort of attitude but also it was kind of like there was very much an 80s attitude as well yeah <laughs> it's still there that attitude's still there because then you you have got the best of the both it's like yes you can be passionate about a subject and you might want to change something but you can also think well yeah but we can still have a laugh yeah well exactly that's it that's it yeah i mean you have to <laughs> you, can't, you can't really go through life taking it too seriously you know what i mean you have to you have to have a, a bit of sense of humor as well about it all you know really otherwise you'd end up in, a, in an asylum <laughs> yeah i mean obviously with 
you know, like with that second album, did you think, okay, well, I can say something here, but, you know, we're also going to write, these are essentially rock songs and, and I can actually make a point. Obviously, I highlighted Belfast because that was obviously something very close to you. But did you, were you consciously doing that or did it all happen just too quick? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I mean even on the first album, there's a, there's a lot of po- political um, connotations in there as well, uh, obviously, and, and I'm still doing that because uh, <laughs> there's still a lot of corruption out there that needs to be uh, highlighted. I mean, Animal Man, for instance, the song, uh, that, that, that's, uh, that song says it all, basically. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it, it has to. It's still, it's all still there, and it all still has to be highlighted. So, uh, and I, I feel passionate about it. So, but in saying that, I, I, I do have a sense of humour, and uh, I will, ju- I will put out songs that are humorous as well. All over you, for instance, I thought I'm going to go out there and out cheese everybody. <laughs> Yes, in yeah, I think yeah, I'll say no more on that. But I think you probably managed it. I'm I'm going to quote you here. Yeah, uh, this is Kerrang issue one twenty five. It says the world is crying out for something new, and it's here, and it's called Rogue Mail. So get off your asses and check it out, or else it's bye bye, and we'll see you in fifty years time when you catch up. <laughs> That must have been 86. Yeah. 96, 2006. So we're 30 years in. Yeah. yeah. Are you you still ready to kick kick him up the arse in another 20 years then? Well, yeah, why not? (laughs) Never say die. Well, but you were talking about the attitude then. I mean, obviously, when you were younger, maybe you were a bit more sort of like, I don't know, out there about it. But the general philosophy is still the same. Oh, definitely, I would say so. Yeah, the attitude's still there. You know, it's all about uh, Rogue Mail's all about the attitude, attitude, delivery, expression. That's what Rogue Mail's about. You know, so it's still there, and uh, we will flog it to death. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, there's a new Mad Max movie out. I just wondered if you had the old gear because you'd probably fit right in, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Look, let's talk about Nail It. Came out in two thousand and nine. Well, actually, 2010. It was recorded in 09, the end, and I, it was out for 2010, basically. Uh, yeah, I put that. Well, what happened? I tried to get the original lineup together, but just could not, uh, could not trace the guys, and uh, and just ask Bernie, Bernie Torma and John McCoy, would they, would they do it for me? And they, they agreed to do it. So, I mean, the songs were burning a hole in my head, so I thought I better get something done, get it out. 
2010 was nailing. Have we got anything else coming, or is that sort of secondary, really? To uh, well, I have an, a new album written. Our songs are written for it, ready to go. We're just waiting on the right time to put it out and get it, get in the studio and get it recorded. Sorry to hear it all went, you know, tits up, but then <laughs> it's a big club uh, from it's what we hear, but uh, I'm really genuinely glad you, you're still at it and uh, look forward to the new record. Just keep in touch, mate. Certainly will, Ollie, and I really appreciate you doing this interview and stuff, and uh, I'll tell the rest of the guys as well. I'm sure they'll be uh, listening in as well. All the best, mate. Cheers, Ollie. Well, what a desperately tragic tale of dirty deeds that is, but at least he's retained the ability to laugh about it. Sometimes. We can only hope that one day all the low-life snakes who've ever ripped off a recording artist will be held accountable and get their just desserts. For now, though, you'll just have to make do with the opening track from Rogue Mail's 2010 album Nail It. This is Cold-Blooded Man. I wonder who they're talking about. So 
Now you know what it's like. You've got a pie in the oven, your hands are in the washing up bowl and the phone goes. So you dry yourself off, stomp over to the phone and angrily pick it up. And then a voice from long ago drifts into your ear and all your troubles seem to melt away. Hi, Ollie. It's Lee. Hey, how are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. If it's okay with you, I, I want to go right back to the start and, and, and find out how Karen Lynn Greening became Lier on the Metal Queen. Was heavy rock always a driving passion for you? How did it come about? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, you know, I grew up, I think the heaviest record my mum had was an Anne Murray record. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, very, very traditional, very Canadian, right? So no, I didn't grow up listening to to hard rock at all. Um, my parents, you know, from wherever they came, they, their backgrounds and where they came from, they weren't exposed to a lot of music themselves. So the, the music um, in our house was quite limited when I was a young girl. Um, but a cool thing happened right around my, I guess, 14th, 15th year of age. My dad arrived home with a trunk full of vinyl because he used to work at a college in the Toronto area and that college decided that year that they were going to get rid of their vinyl library and I guess they were moving on to cassette tape. They changed formats. And so my dad arrived with this trunk full of records and in that pile was Elton John, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, a lot of the popular stuff of that time, you know, the mid-70s. And Heart, I remember seeing that Dreamboat Annie record going, who are these women who are writing their own songs and singing and playing amazing and are so authentic. And I was enamored with all of this stuff because I'd never really heard it before. And that was sort of formed the landscape of what I kind of grew up with then. And that simultaneously that year, I was performing in a musical theater production and um, a bass player from a local band came out and saw the production that I was in and thought I had a powerful voice and asked me if I would audition for his band. So that was the beginning for me. And I remember my I was only 15 years old. So my father drove me to the audition. He wasn't about to let me go, you know, un, unchaperoned. And uh, at first, all the other boys in the band were kind of like, ah, you know, I don't know, we weren't really thinking that it would be a chick that would be the singer in our band. They ended up calling me and telling me that I had the gig, I guess nobody else, you know, could sing as well, or for whatever reason. I was invited to join this band when I was 15 years old, and then everything changed. Then I was introduced to a whole bunch of stuff that I had never really heard before. We, I mean, we did Zeppelin covers, you know, and Joplin covers in my very first, the very first incarnation of Learen. Wow. So you were singing Robert Plant songs when you were 15, 16. That's right. Now, around about this time, I don't know whether it was around about here or shortly afterwards, you had a pretty bad car accident, didn't you? What was, what happened there? Well, let me preface this by saying that this sort of um, what you're about to talk about was sort of misconstrued in the media back then. I was in an accident when I was 17. My dad was driving. Um, my face kind of got banged up. My nose was broken. My teeth went through my lip. But they just they packed my nose and it healed and everything was tickety boo. Right. And uh, a few years later, I was doing an interview with uh, a journalist at my record label in Toronto. And this guy had no car and he needed a ride home. So I gave him a ride back to where he had to go. And he was joking around about my, my, my driving skills. 
And I said, well, I just, I was, I think I was 24. And he said, you know, I said, I just got my license this year. And he said, well, why is that? I said, well, I was in an accident when I was 17. And I was just, I was fearful of getting my driver's license. I, that was fairly traumatic for me. And, and I said, my face got sort of banged up. Well, somehow he spun that into me having facial reconstructive surgery. Right. <laughs> and I was like, so no, this is the face my mommy and daddy gave me, and it's never been reconstructed. And well, I should say at this point, uh, when I put on the Facebook page that I was uh, I was going to be interviewing you, there was how should we put it? An outpouring of admiration is about the best way I can put it. Ah, well, that's that's amazing. I was in doing a show two summers ago. I was in the Toronto area, and I had a couple of guys. They were like university professors who flew over. And they, to see my show, and I was only playing like a 400 seat club, but they flew over from Britain. And I was so, I don't know, it was just so thrilling for me to have a couple of fans that came all that way to Toronto because it was the closest I was going to get to them for a (laughs) while. I was going to talk about the number of female rock bands and artists over the years. I've spoken to a few, Lita Ford and Girls School and rock goddess who thankfully are all still doing what they do and and there do seem to be a lot more than there were when you first started do you think it's easier now because it's more accepted or or, or was that not actually a problem for you is it easier to be accepted in a rock band if you're a girl now yes i would say yes i think it's much more accepted now for a girl to just pick up a guitar and rock and write her own songs you know we were all kind of stuck under this umbrella of the corporate record record industry in the 80s, which was very marketing minded. And if you were a girl who was even reasonably good looking, there was a real push to market you in an objectified way. And certainly for myself, I mean, I have to say, and I, you know, I, I don't even want to use the word victim because I never considered myself I, I hate victim mentality and I, I've never thought of myself like that, but I was definitely part of that wave of thinking, I'll put it that way. Um, so certainly in the 80s, you know, I, I felt that to some degree I was battling against my, the, the images that were put out there for marketing superseding the importance of the music. Right. And I find that that is lesser now, but that has to do also with the record industry sort of falling apart so that there isn't the marketing dollars to to do that aren't there anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and that does take us on to, to, to another question I had, which was to do specifically with Metal Queen. Right in electric 
that was um, the breakthrough album I remember that was the one that brought you really to, to my attention but ultimately that record and, and perhaps the perceived persona that went with it was that both a blessing and a curse for you well it was a blessing in that it certainly got people's attention <laughs> it was definitely a iconic type of image the curse of that was that it was also a cartoonish type of image so I, I guess I would have to say timely as opposed to timeless. Right. <laughs> but again, one, once again, I think the image almost superseded the music. And was that, I mean, again, was that image something that was pushed upon you at the time or was it a, an idea which then got spun out of control or how did it, did you feel a bit out of control with it? <sighs> how do I explain it? The idea of putting a, a strong female persona out there was certainly in the cards. That was my idea, but it was an idea that kind of spun out of control. Um, you know, I, I showed up for uh, the video shoot and slash photo shoot, and I showed up and there was a costume that was rented from the store in Toronto called Malabar's, and it was this sort of gothic warrior princess. It's like pre-Xena, by the way. Right, absolutely. <laughs> the next thing you know, I was in this outfit going, oh, so this is what we're doing? Really? <laughs> you know? You know, a lot of this stuff happened to me, too, when I was um, very, very young. You know, so when I've got like the 45-year-old record executive telling me that this is what we think is what how we want to sell this and, you know, and we're investing the money, you know. What followed it, obviously, was Call of the Wild, which was a, a, a great record. You were working with Bob Ezrin, uh, who obviously is of, of much renown. Um, how was that process for somebody reasonably young uh, in, in, in the business? I was pretty intimidated by him because, right. you know, I mean, he had done Alice Cooper and Pink Floyd, you know, so it was an it was an interesting process. What had happened on that album is that we had originally started producing the album with our former producer, Paul Gross, who had done Metal Queen with us. And Paul was injured during the recording process. You know, he actually had a racquetball accident and almost almost took one of his eyes out but um and bob ezrin was recording this it was some compilation album that he was doing with a bunch of major rock artists in the 80s and he was in the studio b next door and he kept popping his head in to see what we were doing over there and so when paul was injured bob went into my record label and said i would love to finish the lee aaron record because i've been paying attention i think she's he liked my voice and um i liked what he was hearing so Bob sort of stepped in partway through the recording of that album, and he definitely put his Bob Ezrin stamp on that record because that's what Bob did, right? He So he brought Dick Wagner up from New York. Dick came with a song or two. So Dick, all of a sudden, Dick was involved in playing on some of the, the, the tunes. And um, it was, a, you know, I think I learned a lot, a lot from working with Bob Ezrin just yeah. in terms of, you know, and he's... I, I don't know what you call it, a bit of a mad scientist when he gets in the studio. <laughs> yes. So, and so um, it was really great for me watching his processes um, while he was working. And a lot of the stuff was very immediate. And I know at one point he locked me and John Albany, my guitar player, out of the control room because him and Dick were – you know, hatching some some <laughs> plan for the beginning of the mix of one of the songs, and so it was it was all it was all wild, and you know, I remember it was all the wild, crazy eighties, and so cocaine was still flying left and right, and so it was 
equally enlightening as well as intimidating for me to work with him. In the end, I just, I feel so blessed that I got to work with, you know, uh, like a master like him. Um, you know, I was only 22 years old, so it was pretty amazing. Wow. Now, the mid-90s uh, was hard for any rock band to be taken seriously, and for a lot of them, even just to carry on because of, because of grunge. You kind of responded to that by um, switching genres, not just a different slant on what you were currently doing, uh, pretty much to jazz. Could you talk about how that came about. Was it directly because of what was happening with the musical landscape? It was somewhat of a response to that. I had gone independent. I had left my label in 1992 here and gone indie. But we borrowed, my manager and lawyer together, we'd borrowed like thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, continue on and to start this new imprint. And uh, when grunge really, really took hold, yeah, you're correct. Everybody who was associated with, even remotely with corporate or commercial rock, it's like we all fell off the edge of a cliff and, and, and died. I mean, it, you couldn't get the media or the, the, you know, the media or television or radio to touch you at that point in time. So um, in 1996, I had to go bankrupt because, you know, I just suddenly my manager sort of got took a new job. <laughs> he became a foreign licensing rep for Koch America, stopped taking my phone calls and a bunch of banker boxes just showed up on my doorstep and I went started going through them and went, Oh, I'm almost a half a million dollars in debt. Sweet. Now what do I do? I ended up going bankrupt in 96 and I took a year off. Yeah. That was a fairly dark period for me. Yeah. And when I, you know, I was kept being encouraged by friends to go back and start singing again and get back on a stage, but I had no interest whatsoever in, you know, just, going full on and trying to be to ride the pop culture media wave or, you know, again, it just, it wasn't something that I was interested in doing besides, you know, there's always some 19 year old out there ready to kick your butt. So it's hard to compete, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality and the nature of the industry. Everybody wants something that's fresh and brand new. So I just started singing jazz and blues locally in a few little clubs, just because I missed being on a stage and I'd always embraced I'd always loved that style of music as well what I didn't expect was very quickly after that happened a bunch of local papers came out they started reviewing my show I started getting a lot of press and then it just it started to snowball and the next thing you knew I was getting invited to do jazz festivals here and people were saying when are you going to record this style of music and because I had sung this style of music when I was younger in, you know, I did a lot of musical theater. I think for the most part, it, people realized it wasn't, it wasn't just me trying to establish myself doing something new. It was, a, it was an authentic passion for me. Right. The first time I saw you uh, was in 85, actually. You were supporting um, a nice bunch of lads called Bon Jovi. Was, was touring Europe different uh, than North America in terms of audiences or or just the general way things went? Was it better? Was it worse? Or no difference? You know, I had never seen rock fans so crazy <laughs> when I came to Europe. And then that's the nice thing, too. It's the, it seemed to me that fans in Europe seem less, less, especially rock fans, less caught up with pop culture and influenced by that, that there was this sort of huge underground movement that was alive and well at all times um, with rock 
And, you know, a perfect example of that was my third album, which was produced by Bob, which came out simultaneous right around the time of that Bon Jovi tour. We were released on a small little, it was a small label at the time out of Belgium called Roadrunner. Mm-hmm, yep. And within a short few months, we sold over 100,000 albums. And it were, we were kind of like, our heads were spinning. We were like, how did that happen? Um, because it was very word of mouth. And, um, you know, if you put out a quality record, people, it caught on like wildfire. People found out about it. And so there was a, there was a passion to the fans over there that I never saw in North America. They, they you know, they lived, ate and breathed their music. And that was, it was a beautiful thing. Let's get up to date then. Fire and Gasoline is, uh, is yeah. due out this year. Uh, it's the first, specifically, I guess, rock album since Emotional Rain in 94. That's correct. I always knew I'd make another rock record. And a decade ago, well, a little over a decade ago, 2004 and 2006, I had my daughter and then my son. So I became a parent. And I don't know if you're a parent, but it's, it takes an incredible amount of creative energy to raise your children. So... While I managed to put out a few DVDs and things like that and still perform a handful of shows a year, the amount of energy that it took to actually focus on writing and recording and completing an entire record project, I mean, it is like, you know, writing a book or any body of work. Um, I just didn't feel that it was the right time. Well, it's interesting that because a question I I often like to ask artists who've been away for a while, and it's 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 great to ask people who've been away, possibly because they've started a family. Having children is a, obviously a life changing experience. Did you find that came into what you were writing about? Absolutely. I mean, I I think all of our you know experiences throughout our life shape us, and you know if you're an artist you know, who creates original work, whether it's music or art or, you know, literature or whatever, that's going to creep into your writing in some way. So absolutely. Um, you know, the song Tomboy, that was written for my daughter. Cause I'm a tomboy, tomboy. It's a, it's a song of empowerment about being free to be exactly who, to be your core self, to be your truest self. You know, there's a song on the album called Popular, and that is all about <laughs> one of my big concerns in life, believe it or not, right now with my kids, is just that, you know, this whole social media culture that we live in. Hello, it's Solo Friday, love on the super highway, talk to me, make me feel You know, I guess I sound like an old fart when I talk like this, but I, this culture of instant gratification, of these nanobite conversations where they're just having fewer and fewer actual human interactions with each other. And they're all, you know, even in the same room, they text each other. It's crazy. It's ridiculous, you know. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's your album, so it's your choice. Which uh, which one of those would you like us to play alongside this? Uh, I would, gee, but I would say I have a couple, either fire, either fire and gasoline, the title track, or a song called Bittersweet. 
Fire and Gasoline is the 2016 album from Lieron, so go and have a listen. It's quite poppy in places, but it's definitely a rock record, and there are some marvellous vocal performances, as you'd expect, but above all, some great new tunes. Of the two Lee picked from that album, I've decided to take things down a notch and go for the anti-love song, Bittersweet.
And so, to this show's headline act, as it were. Normally, I'd go into a detailed monologue about the band, their history, and blah, blah, blah. But what's the point? It's Biff from Saxon. Thankfully, as always, with Saxon, there's something new to talk about. A nine-disc vinyl box set of all the albums originally released from 1991 to 2009. I asked him if it was the band's idea or Demon Records who put it out. Well, actually, they acquired uh, Solid Baller Rock and uh, Forever Free. When this catalogue came free from SPV, they inquired, as did a lot of other companies. But they did quite a good job on Solid Baller Rock, actually. So, And it's the BBC, really, you know, although Demon Records, Demon Records, but it's through the BBC. So they have a lot of um, a huge organisation behind them. So we thought we'd give them a go. Sorry, on that, is it, the idea was they just signed the albums. There was nothing, they didn't have any ideas about a vinyl then. That came later, the vinyl. I think it might have been my idea for a box set of them all. It was definitely my idea for the exclusive artwork on the, on the cover, which is well, that there. Okay, which is... Yeah, We're which looking is, at it now, by the way. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work well on radio. No, <laughs> but, it's, behind, it's behind the blue ball. At least. <laughs> Well, I was, I, was, I was going to ask then how much input you have on what goes into that kind of thing, and obviously... Well, on this particular one, quite a lot. But a lot of the EMI stuff, I don't have much to do with it at all, because it usually gets all planned and done, and then um, we find out about it later. Right. You know. Talking about vinyl specifically, it seems a good way to release stuff because it kind of rewards the old fans like me because it harps back to the old days but it's also very fashionable with younger fans too do you think of it as a good commercial opportunity or is it just kind of nice to see these mid-period albums re-released well the, there's a few answers really i mean first of all i love to see the artwork big like it was intended to be you know crusader and uh, even dogs of war uh, you know, all those album covers are all paintings and basically works of art really and they look much better on a 12 inch square than they do on a CD mm. or a cassette or something. So for me, the, the vinyl, uh, you know, the, the, the whole concept of the vinyl as far as artwork concerned is much better because you can see little details, infinite details, you can see the depth of the painting. Um, from a commercial point of view, uh, I, I think the record companies need to make money and in, and, and in doing that then obviously the band make money as well so we can survive you know it's not it's not a charity you know we have to work hard for our money we have to do concerts and we have to write albums and, and do things like this so I think um, it's good because it all works it's a win-win situation because it's it's a win-win for the record company and for the band and, and the fans get this package that won't be done again ever I mean this is the one-off thing they're doing uh, nine box set you know I think it's a risk for company because the, the, the whole thing costs so much money to put together, mm. you know, especially with exclusive artwork yeah. for it, because that's just artwork on, what, five, six, seven thousand vials, mm. boxes, you know, mm. it's not, not a lot if you look at the big of the world. But I wanted to ask you, because you're one of the bands that goes right back to the start for me, something hit me the other day, we talk a lot, I guess, on the podcast and the Facebook groups about where the headliners are coming from and, and why we have this, not obsession, but this huge attachment to the bands, not just that we're in the teenage years, which is kind of obvious because that's a sort of soundtrack to a very formative time, but why that perhaps doesn't exist anymore. And it hit me the other day when I was flicking through the racks and actually bought a new vinyl from somebody that I wasn't sure about, got home, 
read the bits and pieces and it was it just suddenly occurred to me I think that I'd made some time an investment of time and money in that particular band and therefore after that I was a lot more interested in what they did and I just wonder if I think it, there's a, a lot to be said about streaming and being able to hear anything but unless you actually have to put some effort in there isn't an attachment as much of an attachment as there was for us back then does that yeah i think you're probably right in in in, in respect of i think when you buy a physical product and i think it it doesn't work in in the pop genre as much i don't think but in in rock genre i think uh, you know the physical product whether it be a vinyl or a cd it's been put together by people and generally the band have been involved in it being put together if you stream a stream a song or, or buy it on spotify it, you know you're only downloading the musical aspect of, of the of the of the band you're not downloading any sort of anything that anybody says there's not, it's not physical it's just uh, it's just a digital uh, reproduction of what we've done really so i think i think you're probably right and i think a lot of people still buy a physical product and download it as well and stream it you know mm. i mean i don't like streaming our albums before they come out i understand why people do it but it goes against everything i believe in you know to with the surprise of somebody having an album yeah even if it's up from amazon pops through the door it's still it's still a physical product you're still waiting for it aren't yeah. you you know it's a bit like going to the shop but you know like having somebody delivering your groceries they deliver the album but you're still waiting for it and people are going out oh, waiting for the new saxon album or waiting for the new maiden album or oh, it dropped through the door a minute ago you know i didn't pick it up so i think that that excitement um, still remains and i think a lot of young kids will get into um, uh, our genre like it although people these days are impatient they want it straight away mm. i still think they want physical product because i still think that people think that's different to the download and it is different because it's actually not as high quality what you download or yeah. what you stream but vinyl is obviously more analog much more moving parts in a vinyl production i think the vinyl thing it's analog and uh, even though the albums are made on digital you know they're recut onto vinyl onto a master and there's something physically moving you know you can see the needle moving and, yeah you know and it, it, it's something about it i don't really i'm not really a big fan of vinyl you know because i, I lived with it when i was young you know it's a bit ponderous isn't it carrying the thing it's not portable no you know what i mean that's yeah. that's the the bad thing of vinyl it's not portable yeah and the thing is, all, all, all the great cutting rooms sell all their equipment to uh, Czech Republic and Russia. I mean, Abbey Road have got one, but you can only use it if they like you, yeah. apparently. So these people are making millions now. So which is your favourite of these, these albums that are coming out? Have you got one? Yeah, I obviously like Solid Ball of what because that, you know, we came out of that uh, wacky period we were in, in the, in the end of the 80s.
solid ball rock. I quite like Metalhead because it's our it's our delving into a darker side of, of songwriting. It's melodic, but it's all minor. <laughs> <laughs> Discovered the black notes on that album, but yeah, I like that album. I do, and I like I like them all actually. There's some gems in there, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lionhearts is great, you mm. know. The mid '90s was catastrophic for a huge number of heavy rock uh, and metal bands, but you got through that. Why do you think Saxon survived that cull? Was it like a survival of the fittest, you think? Well, if you listen to those albums, what's one of the reasons we were still writing really great music, for a start. We didn't stop spending a lot of money on albums and suddenly start spending four quid, you know, and bashing something out in our bedroom that was just a shadow of what we used to be. We, we really kept on it. And, and luckily, you know, our hardcore fans stayed with us uh, across Europe, not just the UK. And record companies like Virgin Germany, SPV and UDR, but they had faith in us and, you know, gave us money to make these albums. And um, we tried our best, really. And like I say, there are some great moments on those albums, there really are. Some undiscovered gems. <laughs> Which you can now discover. Which you now can discover, yeah, if you've got a vinyl plant. <laughs> I feel I have to talk about Lemmy, who, mm -hmm. um, like Saxon, was a constant in a lot of people's lives, including yours. Mm -hmm. Obviously time marches on and we expect to lose people. They don't live forever, but how hard is it, or was it, to see someone who's been on such a parallel with you and the band, you know, pass away? Well, it's sad, really. I mean, a lot of people went within the same month, but I think Lemmy, um, you know, obviously was special. Um, you know, it was a big friend of mine, and I was talking to him by text a couple of days before he died. Um, it was a, it was a, a really lovely guy, actually, Lemmy, it really was. You know, he got this persona of being a rock and roll rebel, but in actual fact, you know, he was quite happy talking about anything, really. You know, we had some great conversations. Um, the last one we had was about Carl Molden's nose. I don't know where we got that one from, but um, that's what we were talking about. And, uh, yeah, it was great. And uh, I'm glad he went quick and didn't linger too long. But... Um, yeah, he was a great guy, and uh, it'll be missed, and the band will be missed because, you know, I was talking to Mickey yesterday actually, and uh, you know, there'll be no more Motorhead. Obviously, the the the, the brand will go on, yeah. you know, because it's a huge brand. But they've lost they've lost their, um, you know, their shining light on their yeah. leader. You know. I saw an interview with him from about 10 years back and, and someone asked him about you specifically. One of the things that he said was that you were very like him, that you both had a vision and that you just followed it regardless and, and you basically just wanted to be in your band and to be able to, to play. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's fair, yeah. I mean, he was, he was like me uh, in some respect. He, he was definitely from the Never Surrender Club. He was definitely, you know, we were all members of that club. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He, you know, he went down uh, fighting, really. Saxon still releases new music pretty regularly, but I hear you're working on a solo record. Off and on, yeah. I've got about five or six songs, but Saxon keeps getting in the way. <laughs> well, what is it that you want to do on that that can't be done with Saxon? Uh, nothing really in particular. Okay. Play more instruments, maybe. Right. You know, uh, write with a few more different people. Back to the bass, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've played bass. Yeah, I play bass all the time on Saxon stuff, but it's usually on the demos. Right. Because sometimes Nibs drums and, and Nigel plays keyboards. Right. You know, so we are fairly multi-instrumental a lot. Did I say that? Yeah. 
Yeah, multi-instrumental. That, that one. Yeah. I play a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, we can turn our hand to anything really. I play keyboards and guitar. So yeah. Um, I, I asked a few of the people on the Facebook groups if they had any other questions, and um, quite a lot of people asked the same question actually, which is, do you keep? any of your old clothes from back in the day and quite a few of the girls asked if you still had the spandex from the crusader well, tour <laughs> no i wore them out in the places that they wear but yeah uh, some of our clothes were in the uh, uh rock exhibition thing british music exhibition oh, right, yeah that was at the u2 right at the o2 sorry uh some guitars and some of my jackets and I think that's going to be set up somewhere else. You better ask Harvey Goldsmith. You set it up, so. Everybody's asked you all the questions under the sun. We've spoken two or three times and need something about you or the band that we probably don't already know. That you don't know? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know, but whatever about that? I mean, everybody pretty much knows everything about us, don't they? After all the DVDs have been out. There has been a fair few, actually, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing particular. Nothing you want to get off your chest? No, nothing. not really. We're a fairly happy bunch, really. There's no, there's no scar in the cupboard really <laughs> not that aren't already out <laughs> not that not that people don't know about already no thanks again to biff always a pleasure and with reference to the vinyl box set out through demon records we talked about metalhead the studio album released in 1999 and if you haven't heard it before it's a slightly different take on the usual saxon sound as biff mentioned so here is the title track for your listening pleasure
almost it for this one, although I do have another great track to play you out with. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if so, you can hear more of these on Podomatic, iTunes, and always on our main website at classicrockpodcast.com. Please do subscribe and you'll automatically get each new show delivered to your inbox or iTunes. And please leave us a review if you get a second. Do get in touch as well. There are links to our Facebook and Twitter feeds on the main website. Or you can always email me directly at oliver at classicrockpodcast.com. If you really like the show and want to support us, you can head to patreon.com and set up a monthly donation for each of the main shows that comes out. It can be as little as a dollar a month and you'll get that nice warm feeling of knowing you've helped create our award-winning podcasts again there's a link to patreon from the main website so to finish off here's a track from original kiss guitarist ace freely's covers album origins volume one featuring lita ford on vocals and guitar it's the trogs classic wild thing till next time be good Sure.